Hi everyone, this is Pastor Brad, lead pastor at Hillside Church, and I want to say thanks to everyone for joining us for this last session of our Bible study series, Know Your Role, as we examine the role of women in the church. This week, as our study draws to a close, we look at what for many is the definitive passage on this subject, and then we close our time by looking at a couple of other passages that I believe inform how we need to look at this very important subject. Thanks for taking this journey with us. I pray you are blessed as we dive deep into these passages. So far in session one, we did a flyover of the basics of of what we're exploring here, what the views of women in the church have traditionally looked like, and what the Bible had to say about the qualifications for being in leadership in the church. Then last week in session two, we began to tackle some of the places in scripture that people look to form their understanding of the role of women in the church. But now for this week, for our last session together, our last time together, we're going to do, we're going to do two things. We're going to do two things tonight. First, we're going to tackle the king of difficult passages when it comes to women in the church. And two, we're going to talk about some of the places where I believe that the Bible speaks on this issue in a bit of a different light. But why this? Why is this passage so hard to tackle? Why? Why is is First King or First Kings? Wow, First Timothy chapter two verses nine through fifteen. Why is it so difficult to understand? Why has this been a passage that's hung in contention? for years and years and generations and millenniums since since it was written? Why has it been interpreted and understood the way that it has been? Well, it really comes down to something simple, yet something that's so meaningful for us. It really comes down to the problem of words. See, the passage that we're going to read that we're going to spend pretty much, you know, 85% of our time together tonight on, uh, we translate and we read the words that are on the page, but they don't particularly translate into anything profoundly meaningful, profoundly spectacular, profoundly special, that when we read these words, they're, they're words that sound common, and we know what the translated version of these words mean. But in the original language, there are words in these verses that are uncommon, that give different aspects of meaning than what we understand them. And even some of the words that are are used here are not used anywhere else in Scripture. And partly it's because of how provocative they were in the original language and how they're used. This is a phrase that you are going to need to become familiar with as we spend our time together tonight. The phrase, not used anywhere else in Scripture. But this, this passage, as we're going to look through it over and over again, what we're going to see and we're going to talk about is this idea of not used anywhere else in Scripture. So much of this language, and, or so much that's in this passage and the language that's used here has, has been, or some of this is the language that's used here, it's used so infrequently, and some of the language that's used here is so unique, just even inside of this passage that it's actually been a basis for a lot of people to question whether or not Paul actually wrote 1 Timothy. Um, Because people see the language that's used and they say, well, Paul never uses this word in another another place. And and the language, the word that's used here, like it's it's a pretty crass word. It's a word that 
people wouldn't even have used in polite conversation. Would the Apostle Paul really have written that? And so when we talk about how this passage is a passage that people would say, it's not, the, the words are not used any other place in scripture. It's such a profound thing that particularly inside of this passage, it has caused scholars and people to debate even whether or not Paul actually wrote the book. It, it runs so deep. Um, now, we're, we're obviously going to, to start from a place of Paul wrote this book that, that we, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and that if, if this wasn't what it purported to be, that God would have prevented it from being in his word. So we're not going to dive into any, any questions of authorship or anything like that. But that's just to illustrate the idea of how unique some of the language and some of the ways things are taught about, it, both in 1 Timothy and especially in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 15. So why don't we read that passage together, and then we'll begin this journey through it. So verse 9 says, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or, or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit women to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, when I look at this, and, and sort of the way we're going to tackle it a little bit, but there's kind of three chunks or three movements inside of this passage. The first chunk would be verse 9 and 10, um, where Paul gives instruction to women on, on how to dress. And, 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 and so he, he talks about how a woman should not be dressed immodestly, but instead be dressed in, in propriety and, and dressed in, in, in not what they should wear, but that their life should be marked with uh, good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Then verse 11 and 12, is uh, that would be the second chunk. A woman should learn in quietness and submission, and I do not permit women to teach or have authority over a man. And then verses 13, 14, and 15, where Paul seemingly takes this very hard turn into Adam and Eve, and the story of, of Eve was deceived. It wasn't Adam. And then he talks about how women will be saved through childbearing. And so there's kind of those three chunks, 9 and 10, 11 and 12, 13, 14, and 15. But before we dive directly into those verses, um, we do need to examine the full context of the letter of 1 Timothy. Why was Paul writing this letter? And what was Paul, or what was Paul talking about when he wrote the verses in question? So so who was the book of 1 Timothy written to? Timothy. Timothy. Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy to his friend and, and his protege, um, his, his son in the faith. Paul will call him, he will call him Tim, or that's what he'll call Timothy. And Timothy, at this point in his life, is pastoring the church in Ephesus, um, the same church that the letter of the book of Ephesians written, is written to. So, so 
Paul planted the church in Ephesus. He goes on to write a letter to the church in Ephesus that we know as the book of Ephesians. And then later on, Paul will send his protege, Timothy, to Ephesus to help lead this collection of believers, to lead this group of people. And as we're going to discover, it's because there was some major issues going on inside the church. Many, Like many of the letters that Paul wrote when he was writing to help his friend, Timothy, he, many of the letters that he wrote deal with some of the problems that, that are showing up inside the church. And we can see right from the very beginning of 1 Timothy that there were problems that Paul was trying to address, and this was the purpose of the letter. So in the very opening verses, so if you, if you are following along, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, we see why Paul had put Timothy in this church to begin with. In verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work which is by faith. Timothy has been left behind. Paul was there. Timothy is left behind at the church in Ephesus because Paul says, I need you to tell the people and I need you to stop the people from teaching false doctrine. And, and people who have what Paul will say, devoted themselves to myths and what Paul calls endless genealogies. Now, something that's very important to note is that depending on the age of your Bible and which translation you use is the word people. As we read through there, it will say, um, command certain people to not teach false doctrines. Now, some translations, depending on the translation you have, the age of your translation or which version or uh, which translation you, you have, some translations may say command certain men not to teach false doctrine. But the word that's used there is the word, and I'm just going to pronounce all of these Greek words wrong. Um, I'm going to pronounce them like they were English words, but it, undoubtedly that's not the flair that it's used. But the word that is, depending on your Bible, is either translated people or men. It's sin, but that word means someone. It doesn't mean men, and it doesn't mean women. It just means some ones, which is why more recent translations will translate it out as command certain people or command certain ones. The more, it's more accurate to mean someone or a certain one. And you can see this because newer in the more literal translations, that word is not translated men anymore, but people or some, some variants of the idea of that. If Paul was writing about men in the church, it would seem more likely that he would have used the word anir. Anir is the word for men that shows up in, in other places in 1 Timothy. When Paul is talking specifically about men, this is the word that he'll use. He doesn't use that word here. He uses the word sin, to sin, to sin. I don't know how you say it in the Greek, but that would have been the word that he would have used that would have been specific to men. But Paul chose this word, we can understand that he was more likely including the idea that some of this false teaching was coming from something other than men. Probably women 
you know, there's really the one option or the other that if, if it wasn't just men, it must also have, have been women. And I think as we unpack this book, I think that, that we will start to see that, that there is some, some basis to this. So let's continue to break down these opening verses of first Timothy to set the stage for us. Um, you say that they're teaching false doctrines. So what we can understand about this, these doctrines, we can see that what the term false doctrine means is something that's not right or correct. That, that the things that are being taught inside the church, their doctrines, that is something other than right doctrine, an opinion of uh, something other than what is orthodox, something other than what is standard. That is Paul teaches this, or as Paul is telling Timothy, saying, you need to stop these people who are not teaching good, right, orthodox things inside the church. And so the simple conclusion to come to when we read this, because it's a problem that crops up over and over and over again inside of Paul's writings, um, is would be the, the problem that arose inside the early church that we would call Judaizers or Judaizing. Um, which was a, a problem common in the early church. Um, Galatians and Colossians are both specifically written to churches that were dealing with Judaizers. Judaizers were people who wanted to enforce the teaching and application of Old Testament law as a required part of the early church. So, so they taught, you know, that you needed to to abide by and and follow the Jewish law to a T in a New Testament church, that that, that was that, that in order to become a Christian, you first needed to become a Jew. And so that's typically in a lot of New Testament churches, we see Paul writing specifically into that issue. But we see, we can see from a couple of places inside the book of First Timothy, that it didn't seem just as simple as Judaizers. Paul uses language here, not used anywhere else in scripture, we're going to say that a lot, to talk about the false teachings that are taking place in here. We read in first or in verse four that Paul calls them, calls the teachings myths and endless genealogies. And in, actually in chapter four, verse seven, Paul will call the teachings that are causing a problem in the church. He will say, have nothing to do with these godless myths and old wives tales. Now there is no record of anywhere in all of his writings of Paul talking about the Old Testament law like this. That Paul doesn't talk, when he talks about Judaizers, when he talks about the law, he doesn't call anywhere else, he doesn't call the law a myth. He doesn't call it an old wives' tale. That that's, that's not the reverence that Paul has for the law, and that is not the language that Paul uses to discuss the law in any other place in all of Scripture. So if Paul was to do that, we would have must have gotten, would have must have gotten Paul on a really bad day. Um, because this is just language that a, a person who grew up in the synagogue, grew up to be a Pharisee, grew up to have the appreciation that we see Paul write about the law in other places, to suddenly start calling the Old Testament law myths and old wives tales. So it seems as if perhaps there was something more going on with the doctrine and theology than Judaizing. And we can see this theme show up in both 1st and 2nd Timothy as Paul works to combat this bad theology and teachings that have made their way into the church. There was a, there's a couple people actually mentioned specifically by name where he will talk about the first doc, this bad doctrine. In 1st Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, he will write, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, 
Now, again, if we're talking about the Old Testament law, this does not sound like what Paul would say about that. Whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This doesn't sound like people who are, are enforcing the Old Testament law. This is kind of language, again, Paul doesn't use this language regularly. And Paul mentions this person, Hymenius, this time with someone named Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, their teachings will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus. He's mentioning these people specifically and mentioning their teaching in a very not flattering way. There's not a lot of grace and there, there's not a lot of, of gray area that Paul leaves for looking at what this teaching looks like. So, we, so a theme that we can pull out of both of the letters to Timothy is that it seems as if false teaching and teachers were very much a strong problem for this church. And we read at the very beginning of the letter that, that Paul says to Timothy, this is why I sent you there. This is it. This is why I sent you to Ephesus was to deal with this problem. And we can see from looking at it again in both First and Second Timothy that women were a part of this false teaching epidemic. In First Timothy chapter five, he will write this about he, Paul will write this about some of the young women in the church. He will write, besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things. They ought not to. So I counsel younger women to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Again, here's the next verse again. We see the severity of what Paul's talking about. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Paul is giving some, some very strong words about the things that are taking place in this church. Now, if we go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, so we jump again to the next book, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul will write this again when he's speaking about these false teachers. He will say, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. What we cannot specifically discerned from these verses is if women were part of spreading this false doctrine. But what we can see is that they were part of the problem, even if they were only victims of the teaching. But what we can do is look outside of scripture and look at the cultural context of what was taking place in the time to see if women were a part of spreading this false doctrine. Or, sorry, we already, I already said that. Um, but what we can just look outside of scripture, see what was going on in the world at the time and in the, in the place to see if that could give us any hints as to what this problem would be. And I think that there's two verses that I think give us some pretty strong hints outside of the passage that we looked at. The first is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, which says, they want to be teachers of the law but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And the second is actually the very closing verses of first Timothy, first Timothy chapter six, verses 20 through 21, where Paul brings back up this idea of false doctrine, where he says, Timothy guard, what has been entrusted to your care, turn away from godless chatter 
and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. And then he closes the letter with grace be to you all. Now, the city, something you need to know is the city of Ephesus was a great Gentile metropolis, and the, the church was mostly made up of Gentiles. Ephesus was a large trading city, and it was a very multicultural city because it was a, train, or a trading city where, where people from all over the world would gather in Ephesus to trade. And so it was a large city, and it was made up of lots of cultures, and, and it was predominantly not Jewish as it wasn't in Israel. And so many of the converts in this church would have been people freshly converted to Christianity and really just learning about what they actually believed. And also would have at the same time been learning about what of their former beliefs were no longer compatible with their new beliefs. That it's a church of people who are just fresh to this idea of faith. So they're learning, they're fresh to this idea of this Christianity. So they're learning what does it mean to be a Christian? And in being a Christian, what am I not now that I used to be? And one of the pro predominant philosophies and religions in this time and culture was something that would grow into what we would know as Gnosticism. And this is why these verses are so important, because Paul references being on guard against these things that are being taught that are falsely called knowledge. And some people have begun to profess this knowledge, but it's actually leading people away from the church. And this is significant because what Gnosticism was, it was sort of like a religious trend. Like, you know how sometimes inside of Christianity or, or whatever, there, there will be different movements that take place inside the church that just sort of seem to catch on that the, like something like the emergent church where, where it wasn't particularly a thing. And then this, this sort of movement rises up or, or the, the young restless reform movement or the, even the Pentecostal explosion in the 1920, that, that there, there just sort of seems to be these, these waves of, of religious um, fads, you know, many years ago, it seemed like every celebrity was into cabal and they all wore the little red bracelet things. And, and there's sort of these ebbs and flows and Gnosticism was one of these that rose up. And there's some things that made Gnosticism different than, than and we'll talk about some of them, but what you need to know about Gnosticism is that the word means knowledge and the idea of it is that people would be given special, secret knowledge and insight. That that's, that, that's what people who, who held to this, this, this religious trend would have, would have professed. That there would be individuals that would be given special, significant, hidden insight. Um, and we can find from other early church writings, um, especially from the first and second century, um, that would come after after this, that Gnosticism actually became a very big problem inside the early church. And I didn't write down the, the author's names. It was all, you know, the Jewish Herodotus. Or, and I can get you that if you'd like, like to know it. Um, but this, this the idea of Gnosticism was actually a really big problem. And it was sort of the first big Christian heresy 
that happened inside the church. This, the first really big sort of heretical sort of, you know, the, the Judaizing was a thing, but it wasn't really trying to get people away from God. Gnosticism was sort of the first thing that rose up inside the church that we would liken to like an emergent church or so, where it was trying to push people in a different direction than what the Bible has to say. Now, what makes Gnosticism different was that it wasn't just an early church or it wasn't just an early church or a Christian problem. Gnosticism was something that traveled religions and belief systems, that you could be a Christian Gnostic, or you could be a, a Islamic Gnostic, if Islam was, was around back then, but different, different religions. It, it wasn't contained to Christianity. It was something that would spread into different religions where people would have this idea that there was a special knowledge or a special revelation about something. Now, what makes the connection between what Paul and Timothy, or what Paul writes to Timothy in, in these verses that we've read, and Gnosticism, a compelling one, is how Gnosticism spread inside of Christianity. That when we look at what or how this took hold and took root inside of the early church, the typical understanding of Gnosticism inside of Christian circles began in the way Gnostics saw Adam and Eve and what came from what they would say is their sin. Um, the, the, in the Garden of Eden, the eating of the, of the tree of the fruit of knowledge. Gnostics taught detailed genealogies and stories about the beginnings of their secret knowledge in God, which are the very things that Paul highlights for Timothy that these fake teachers are doing, except Paul calls them myths and endless genealogies. But in essence, the idea boils down to this. This is what the Gnostic teaching on the Bible and the story of creation and Adam and Eve, it essentially boils down to this. When Eve ate of the tree of knowledge, she actually received hidden knowledge that God had kept from humanity. And God continued to keep this hidden knowledge from humanity. But because Eve had eaten of this fruit, she had discovered it that God had attempted to keep it hidden by forbidding them to eat from it, but she had eaten from it. And rather than seeing what Eve did as sin, they saw her as eating of her, they saw her eating of this fruit as something that made her superior to Adam and equal to God. That by her eating of this fruit, that she had gained this special, unique, hidden knowledge that God didn't want humanity to have because he wanted to hoard it all to himself. And so in doing that, Eve didn't bring sin into the world, but Eve brought this, this special sacred knowledge to all of humanity. And this gave rise to many early church false doctrines where, where Eve actually would serve as a mediator between God and people. And that Eve continued to receive special knowledge from the serpent long after the Garden of Eden. That the story of Eve's life was that she continued to have relationship with the serpent. And the serpent wasn't the devil, but the serpent was a picture of this hidden knowledge that Eve was given, a, given insight to. And a major focus of Gnosticism was that because it was Eve who ate the fruit first, that allowed her to, to discover God's hidden truths, that women would be the ones who would inherit the special knowledge all stemming from Eve. 
and they believed that they could trace the journey of this special knowledge back to Eve through these, these women who would have these highlighted stories throughout either the Bible or outside of the Bible, and it was the stories of these women to whom this special knowledge had been passed on to. So if we go back to the book of 1 Timothy for a moment and see if we can fit this understanding of what was cultural at the time into what we're reading here, when we read in 1 Timothy chapter 5 about some women going house to house, spreading gossip and saying things they ought not to say, and Paul indicates that some of these women have already fallen away or fallen away and to follow Satan. That's, that's what we had read earlier, that Paul said some of them have gone so far that they have even actually started to follow Satan. It seems as if something very significant is going on that's being spread inside this church. Again, this is not language that Paul used flippantly throughout his, his ministry. And so let's look at the specific passages that, we're talk, ta- that we are tackling tonight. We're going to start to dive into that and see if this idea of Paul confronting heresy, perhaps this idea of Gnosticism being spread through the church by false teachers, perhaps women will help us make sense of this. So let's first look at the first chunk I was referring to, verses 9 and 10, which say, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. So what we well, just a quick little pause. Says, I also want. So you may be curious to know what Paul was saying in the verses before that. He's writing and he's talking about how he wants the men to pray in church and what that will look like. So he's given instructions to men on how to participate in church. Then he, he moves his focus to women. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with goodness or with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, the first place I want to take a look at is actually the last couple of words, profess to worship God. Because the word that is translated here for profess, this is the only place in scripture where we translate it as profess. In every other place where this word is used, and I'm not even going to try and say it, it's up there. The big long word that starts with an E. Um, it shows up on over here, if you're watching on Zoom, um, epangigolomai, something like that. In every other place where this word is used, it is translated to promise. As the word means to promise, to announce that one is about to do or to furnish something. And the main idea behind this word is something promised to someone typically to gain something. Um, this word was commonly used as a political term. Um, it would be like a, a political promise to gain supporters. The idea of politicians that, that make promises to get you to vote for them. I think we can all not have to think back too far to understand exactly what that meant. You know, that, that our, our common experience right now is we've been promised a lot of things in the last little while um, in order to try and get us to vote for an individual person. And so this is the word that Paul uses when he says that they, they profess godliness. The, another way to understand it and the more common way to understand it would be to promise godliness. So if we understand this in light that these women were professing godliness, were telling those who would listen that if they were to listen to what these women were saying, that they would discover godliness, that, that they were wanting to be teachers that they were saying, if you listen to me, I will teach you about 
godliness, that it wasn't just that they were professing their faith in God, but that they were promising a understanding of God, that, that, if, if, that he, Paul will say that he gives all of these instructions to, to, to one who wants to promote or promise godliness. And it's not a promise of, of somehow salvation in them, but again, it's like a promise that's used to gain support, that it's sort of, if I want to teach you about what real godliness means. These women, um, and, and so if we understand that, that, that that's what they were doing, these women who had been deceived by others were bringing the same deception into the church, as Paul says, based on myths, speculations, and old wives' tales. So then why does Paul encourage the women to dress modestly and adorn themselves with good deeds rather than expensive clothes, elaborate hairstyles, and pearls? Well, it's because although times have changed, men haven't. And if a woman wants to get a man's attention and have him listen to whatever she has to say and to agree with her, there's one way that's proven effective for millennia that women can do this that has worked for thousands of years. Sex appeal. That, that, that a man will listen to, to a woman if, if, if she shows him a certain kind of attention. And so Paul is, is saying, listen, if these women who are professing to be God-fearing teachers in church, they need to clean up their act and, and not use sex as a way to get people's attention. Um, and we're, we'll see this theme come up again in actually in a couple, in, in, in um, verse 12. But that's essentially why he's saying, I'm encouraging the women to dress properly, not with these elaborate hairstyles and doing all of these things to gain attention. But if you really are a teacher of God, then your life shouldn't be marked by how you dress. It should be marked by your good deeds. It seems as if these women were carrying themselves in a way to demand the attention of the men in the church by whatever means they could and promising them a new kind, a new understanding of godliness, a new kind of godliness if they listened to them. And then Paul has his response to this in the next chunk that we talked about in verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit women to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, this is going to take a little bit more detailed work again, because there are a couple things that are happening here again behind the scenes again. And again, a few of them are the only place in scripture. So first, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Um, now, first, a couple things to note here. Paul was talking about these or Paul was talking about these women in the verse that he just wrote were trying to be teachers. But Paul is saying that Timothy needs to teach them. And just the fact that Paul was telling Timothy to allow women to be taught was revolutionary for the time. As Jewish tradition at the time was that women were barred from even being educated in the scriptures formally. But Paul says that these women who want to teach, first they need to be taught, and they need to be taught right. And Paul is actually telling Timothy, let them learn. Stop allowing them to be ignorant. If they want to learn, teach them. But they need to show that they want to learn. And what makes a good student? A good student is one that learns in quietness and submission. We already read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, and 6, verse 20, that one of the hallmarks of the church was were all of these discussions about these myths and wives' tales and genealogies that were prevalent in the church. So I would say that it's not silent specifically from women that Paul was concerned with, but rather submissive students learning well. And as Paul was talking about these women, 
he is saying, and if they want to be good students, this is what that looks like. And, and we know that, and we can tell at least to some extent this, because the word here that translate as, as that we translate as quietness, it doesn't mean silence. Now, this is not a case of the only time in scripture, not at all. In fact, Paul uses this word early, the same word earlier in this very chapter in verse two, he uses the same word for silence. And when, if we read verse one and two, Paul writes, I, I urge then, first of all, that petitious prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's not silence that Paul is after, that that's not what, what Paul is saying, that if we pray for our kings and rulers, that we might all live in peacefulness and silence. It, that, that's not what that word means. The word is another Greek word. Asentia. Aschia. I don't know that word. Um, and it, what it means is freedom from conflict, stress, and turmoil. And so what Paul is looking for here is, is respect for the teacher so that everyone could gain from the, le the learning experience. Remember, the situation in this church was bad. The bad doctrines and teachings were the very reason that Paul had sent Timothy. We read that in verse 3. The very reason Paul left him there was because of how bad the teaching was there. And so now we move on to verse 12. I do not permit women to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So actually, to, in order to get through this verse, we're going to need to take a couple of stops along the way to get the full picture of what's being talked about here. First, let's begin with the word permit. The verb that is used here, it's actually two words. Um, ak, um, and it's two, So it's two words, ak, apet, repo, and it means limited situation. Um, it's the exact same word. It's the exact, and, and when it's translated, it speaks to a limited situation, not a universal one. Um, it's the exact same phrase that Jesus uses when he gives permission for the demons inside the man to enter the pigs. It's the word that the demons use, and it's the word that, that, that Jesus will use. Um, and it, but we know that it wasn't a, a permission for all demons, and it wasn't a permission for all pigs. It was these specific demons and these specific pigs. It's the same word for the man that the man uses when he wants to follow Jesus, but he says, first permit me to go home and bury my father. It's the same phrase that he uses there. For this specific instance, can I have permission? It's the same word that Pilate uses when he gives Joseph of Arimathea permission to bury the body of Jesus. It, it, it's a specific permission for a specific body. It's all the same phrase. That, that, and, and in all of those, these phrases, we, we, we can understand sort of what this phrasing means. And so something that we can understand for that is that Paul, by choosing the phrase that he did, was probably conveying the meaning of that phrase, that he was putting a specific limitation on a specific situation. Now, the next place that I want to pause is the phrase to assume authority or different translations, depending your Bible may say usurp authority. 
because most people read this and assume what's happening here is that the woman who steps into authority is taking or usurping authority that should have been a man's or husband's or whatever. Now, this word here, the Greek word is authentian. And this word right here is actually the main source of even the, the debate about whether or not Paul wrote this letter. Um, because there's a lot that goes into this word that some people would say a Bible teacher wouldn't use that word. An apostle wouldn't use that word. Um, and it's, this, uh, this is the only time in scripture that this word is used at all. And it's a word that wasn't even common used outside of the church. The traditional word for authority is excusia, and it's used 32 times in the New Testament. So this is the standard New Testament word for authority. And Paul uses this word to describe authority. But Paul doesn't use that word here. He uses the word authentic. Or, yeah, authentic. So what does the use of this word mean for us? Well, the, the basic definition of what this word means is to thrust out from oneself or to desire. It's a word that's used to mean a murderer or a perpetrator of a serious crime. But it's a rare word because it's actually a vulgar word. Some might say an inappropriate word for polite conversation. Um, it's a word that conveys strong sexual overtones. Um, and so, so this, this word where, where this usurp authority um, to, to the different words that, that might have been used, um, assume authority, assume, uh, usurp authority, it's this word, and, and it, it has this, this very strong, both malicious and sexual connotation to it. Now, something that, that's important to know and understand is that sex was, as we talked about Ephesus being sort of this, this hub for multicultural world religion, people from all over the place, was that sex was a driving force for many of the, much of the pagan religious world, and especially in Ephesus. Um, the city at the time was famous for its shrine to a goddess named Diana, where there would literally be thousands of what would be called sacred prostitutes that taught that sex was something that would bring us closer to God. And so with the use of this word, both with its nefarious and its sexual overtones, we then can see that it's probably not just simply women having a position of authority in the church that Paul didn't like, but something more and uglier than that. It would seem that some of these pagan practices had made their way into the church, or perhaps the newer converts hadn't fully grasped that this was not actually the way that the church was supposed to go. But these women who say, they, who say or who we say earlier, were, were dressing immodestly in order to get the attention of the men around them, were going even further in some places to gain authority or influence in the church. And so what I would contend is, is after, after we've unpacked those couple of verses, that if we were to reread these verses in light of everything we talked about, it might say something like this. This is the BSV, the Brad Standard Version. Um, right now, I do not want these women who are causing problems with their doctrines to be teaching in the church, and I want you to make sure that these women are not using sex as a tool to gain influence 
over the men in the church. And now we come to the last and probably the most confusing part of this passage, chunk, verses 13, 14, and 15. And I think it's the most confusing part because it seems to come flying in out of left field. That there's a lot of discussion about the church and how it operates. And then Paul drops into this very short discussion, completely, seemingly about something totally different, Adam and Eve. Um, and he, he will write this. For Adam was, was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and who became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What does Adam and Eve have, and then who was deceived first, have to do with any of this? And what on earth does verse 15 even mean? Um, there are some schools of thought that use these verses in the story of Adam and Eve as fodder for teaching that women are actually spiritually weaker and more easily deceived than men because the, Eve, or because the devil went to Eve and not to Adam and that these verses make the, that Paul's making a case for these ideas that, that women are actually spiritually inferior to men because, because of what's transpired here. And there's teachings that say that, that Eve was actually a burden to Adam. Um, because of her lack of, of spiritual strength. But I think if, if we look at these verses in the light of Gnosticism, they actually make some sense. That if we look at these verses in light of potentially this teaching that we know became a big problem for the church in the years after this, we can see that, that the, these verses actually fall into line pretty specifically. Remember, Gnostics saw Eve as a spirit or a special and superior because of her special knowledge that she received by eating the fruit, that she was equal to God, that she did not sin. But how could Eve be superior and have special knowledge over Adam when Adam was created first? This is why Paul goes back to the creation and Eve's fall. In doing so, he's tearing down the ideas and teachings of Gnosticism, taking on their claim of secret knowledge passed down by Eve. How could Eve have this special knowledge if she was deceived? He uses the creation story and the fall of men to, or the fall of man to counter and overturn Gnostic heresy that glorified what Eve did and to call it what it actually was, sin. He was bringing back in the orthodox, right, good doctrine that's being taught from scripture, not this external doctrine that's bad, that's old wives' tales, that, that is, is myths. Now, verse 15 is a bit of a mess when we try and translate it out, because the word that we translate as women at the beginning is actually the, sing, uh, the singular pronoun she, but then Paul switches to the plural they in the same sentence. So, so where it says, but women, the word there is actually singular. Um, it, it would be like, but wom like woman or she will be saved through childbearing if they, but then the they becomes plural. So I don't, does, does that track? The, the second word is singular, but then when it changes to if they, it becomes plural. Paul, Paul's term, a woman in verse 12 becomes she in verse 15, but then they later on in the same verse. So we have this weird journey of, of women in verse 12, she in verse 15, they later in the same verse. But let's just talk for a moment about what is being said here. But women will be saved through childbearing. Now, what does that mean? That's not the gospel. And that's not what we read in scripture. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Unless you're a woman, then you can just have a couple of kids. That's not what it says. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Or if you're a woman, just have a kid and you'll be fine. So what does it mean that women will be saved through childbearing? Well, let's try and break this down if we can get there. Verse verse 15 begins with but. So that means it's connected to the previous thoughts. Who is the she that's mentioned in the previous thought? There's only one woman mentioned in the verse prior. Adam was not the one who deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women, but she will be saved through childbearing. So who was the she? She was Eve. So she, Eve, will be saved. What is Eve saved from? Well, what do these verses highlight for us? What did we just read about? We read about Eve's deception, saved from the curse of the fall, from bringing sin into the world. So Eve will be saved through childbearing. Why? Because Eve will bear a child, and her children will bear children for generation to generation until one day Eve's long-distance descendant, Mary, will give birth to Jesus. Women will be saved through childbearing, not because somehow having a child will get you into heaven, but a woman will be saved. Women, she... Eve will be saved through childbearing because generation after generation after generation after generation will pass until Jesus is born, through whom salvation is offered to everyone. And these women in the church can accept the gift of forgiveness and salvation from Jesus Christ, which will change them and how they're living, and they will be saved as well. Here, Paul closes out this this discussion with the supremacy of Christ over everything, with the gospel. The women in Ephesus had mixed biblical truth with Gnostic fables and myths. They were no longer walking in faith. Paul didn't tell them to stop teaching simply because they were women, but because of what they were teaching, how they were living. Was not the gospel of Christ crucified. It was something else, something that was destroying the community. So here's how I would sum up what we've walked through tonight using 1 Timothy. I'm just going to give you seven quick points, each one with references. Gnostics were teaching a strange doctrine. Some claimed to have special knowledge. These women promised a special kind of godliness. They were unlearned and unschooled in the scriptures. Oh, sorry, there's two that showed up. They were unlearned and unschooled in the scriptures, and they had left the faith. Because they were unlearned and without faith, Paul didn't want them teaching until they were qualified and properly taught. Paul, and then lastly, Paul takes on their dangerous teachings. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, I don't believe is meant as a restriction or a regulation on the church today. I don't believe it bars or removes women from a place of leadership inside of the church, but rather I believe it serves as a strong reminder of the importance of correct doctrine proper discipleship, and the development of Christian character inside the church and in our lives. That's the conclusion that I would draw from that. Now, the last thing that I want to do, last part of our discussion, the flip side of this. We've dealt with all of these passages that seemingly prohibit women from teaching in the church. 
But are there any verses that support the idea that men and women are equal partners in the church? We have not talked about that essentially at all, other than a little bit of references at the very beginning. All the cards on the table, um, I don't have a whole lot of verses to point you to. Um, I only have a couple of scriptures for this, and I actually believe that's a good thing. Um, not just because it's been a long go already. That that's not why I think it's a good thing. But I think it's a good thing because I think it's something that I think God never intended to be part of our orthodoxy. God doesn't give much of a distinction between how he views men and women in a spiritual sense, so there isn't that much to say about it. Our first time together, we looked at a lot of places in scripture that speak about women who were in places of leadership and prominence in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So I'm not going to go back over that. If you didn't hear it, you can go back and listen to the first one. But there are just a couple of places I'd like to highlight um, inside of a scripture from the very beginning up until Paul. So first, let's go to the very, very beginning, Genesis chapter one, the first book of the Bible, the beginning of everything. When people are created, Genesis chapter one, starting at verse 26 says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. God begins by making man in his own image. The word for man is actually Adam. It's pronounced Adam. That's the only one that I wrote down the pronunciation for. It's Jewish. So you have to like phlegm your throat a little bit, but Adam. Um, but it mean, it, it, what it means is mankind. It's not specific. It's not the Hebrew word for man. It's the Hebrew word for mankind, um, more, like a more universal mankind. And even, though, and even then we know that because it, sa it says that God created mankind in his own image. And then he goes into the specific use of male and female, men and women. He created them. Both men and women were created in the image of God. There was no difference in the creation of the two in their importance. There were not multiple images of God. In fact, the idea of multiple images of God was a defense that Christian people used to use to justify slavery um, a couple hundred years ago. That was how the, the Christian thought and teaching of the day was, was that there were multiple images of God, and that's why there were different races and skin colors, and some had more value than others. But obviously, that's not something we, we subscribe to. We don't believe that there's multiple images of God. And so when God created male and female, he created them both in a singular image of himself. Doesn't mean they're the same, but it doesn't mean that there's a multiple images of God. God created men and women in his own image. From the very beginning, God didn't differentiate. And we see that God calls and commands, or that God's call and command to subdue the world was given both equally to them and not merely to him. That as God says, go and take the, or what, what does he say? Uh, be fruitful and increase in number. God blessed them and said to them. Um, God said to, for them to have dominion over the earth. It wasn't for him to do and her to watch, but from the very beginning of time, God had placed the same value on men and women and was calling them to do the same things. Again, in our first time together, we looked at the prophecy of Joel that God was going to pour out his Holy Spirit on both men and women. 
And then even throughout Paul's letters, as he wrote to the churches he pastored, and would have been well aware of both men and women being a part of these churches, he would give instruction about teaching and sharing. A couple examples, Galatians chapter 6, verse 13, says, teach and counsel one another. Uh, Whenever you come together, each one of you have a psalm and a teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26. Chapter 14, verse 26. A couple verses later from there. You can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and be encouraged. Years ago, we saw we did a, a Bible study, and it was on VHS. That's how long ago it was. But the teacher on the study, back when we were at St. Francis, would say every time he talked about verses like this, he would say, how many is all? And all is all. That, that, when, that you all may learn something and that you all may teach. Throughout Paul's letters, believers are instructed to teach and to learn from one another with continue, with, or without continuous references to gender. That he doesn't say, you can all, whenever you come together, each one of the men has a psalm. Each one of you has a psalm. And I want to close this by looking at a couple of verses from Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 23. Before the coming of this, we were held in custody under the law locked up until the faith that was come would be the faith that was to come would be revealed so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith not that this faith has come we are no longer under or now that this faith has come we are no longer under a guardian we're no longer under the law so in Christ Jesus all are children of God through faith all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. And now Paul talks about what all means. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks about this transition that takes place from the law to living under the grace that came from Jesus Christ. That's the narrative we talked about last time, going from no Jesus to Jesus. But then Paul will say that we're all brought to a place of sameness through this grace, through this faith, that we've all been clothed in Christ. And he highlights that our distinctions are are now gone. He goes on to name these distinctions that are no longer there because of, of Jesus. Jews and Gentiles are no longer separated. That's a big deal. Oh, and the, sorry, the last verse, sorry. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Then he says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Since the beginning of time, the Jews were God's chosen people and the Gentiles were on the outside looking in. There was no place for them inside of God's kingdom. And now that door was open to everyone. But we don't struggle with that that we don't preach a gospel that, that there is specific races that the gospel is more open to. We don't preach a, 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 a message from the pulpit that says there's certain races that belong on the pulpit, but, not, or, but races that don't. Um, then Paul says that there's neither slave nor free. In God's eyes, we were all the same in our social status, our economic status doesn't really matter. We don't preach a gospel that says there's, there's a different gospel if you're poor. We don't preach a, a gospel that says there's a different gospel if, if you don't 
have a, a certain social status. We don't, we don't teach that you don't belong up on the stage if you don't have a certain amount of money or if you don't have a certain economic status. We, we see there's neither slave nor free, and we throw our amen behind that. We say the gospel is open to everyone. And in fact, when you look at these three things that Paul lists, it's really tearing down the areas that are the strongest when it comes to the way we discriminate against each other. No Jews or Gentiles. That's right. Oh, sorry. This was where I was supposed to switch. These. No Jews or Gentiles. That's race. No slave nor free. That's social or economic status. And those first two, we, we as a society, we as Christians, we as believers have thrown our amen solidly behind that. But then the third one male or, or female. This, this is gender. God is saying that he will not discriminate against anyone. Doesn't matter your race, your social status, or your gender. As Paul says here, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, two of these distinctions, like I've said, we as believers have, have been really ready to accept and celebrate. We happily accept and embrace that, that God doesn't discriminate when it comes to race even though the people at the time or even for the people at, no even though for the people at the time this would have been a really controversial statement that if you were a first century jew and someone came to you and said the god of abraham isaac and jacob have opened the doors to the gentiles that was a death penalty kind of statement that this was not a thing that was a thing that was heresy that was blasphemy. That was a problematic theology. But now we accept this. And of course, we believe that God doesn't discriminate when it comes to social status, that we're all find equal footing at the foot of the cross, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, whatever it may be. But even though we happily accept and believe the first two statements, some people can have pause and drag their feet over the last one. Women, for different reasons can be a problem for certain people. But Paul says, now through Jesus Christ, all the walls have been torn down and there is no longer any walls that divide us and categories that we need to fit into to be accepted and to be useful to God. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, we are all seen the same way by God. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The, uh, the Foursquare Church, uh, we believe is a biblically-based movement. And at Hillside Church, we believe we are a biblically-based church. I believe that any passage that may be used to limit or reduce anyone role, anyone's role in the church based on something like gender is simply being Im applied in, in the... You can tell I've been talking for an hour. My tongue is getting very tired in my lips. Um, any passage that's being used to reduce anyone's role in the church based on something like gender is simply being applied improperly. We are fully convinced that gender does not discriminate the ministry capacity that people can receive. Thanks for listening to this message from Hillside Church. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Hillside Church, there are a couple places you can go. HillsideAirdrie.ca is our website, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HillsideAirdrie. You can also look us up on YouTube and find all of our messages on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to connect to the pastoral team at Hillside, you can do that through our website, HillsideAirdrie.ca, and click on About Us in the main menu, and then click on Our Pastors. 
We're so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Hillside Church, we are a family, not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. As family we go.